I want to welcome you again to Cornerstone, and today is the third Sunday of Advent. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a, a wreath with five candles on, a, on it here, up on this table up here on the front, and uh, it's a little hard to see. I know the sight line is a little low, but today we've lit the third candle, which represents the third week of Advent, and this is part of Christian tradition where the church would wait in eager expectation and reenact the coming, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day, when the believers would get together, they would light the center candle, which is the Christmas candle, to commemorate, commemorate Jesus' birth and his inception, his uh, invasion, his incarnation here on earth. And so today is the third Sunday of Advent, and we are going through a series of sermons to um, think about Advent, and not your traditional type of sermon series for Advent, rather than kind of talking about just the birth and what it all means and Christmas and all that, we decided to ask four important questions. The first question that we asked was, how did people know that Jesus was going to show up when he did, right? And it seems like for thousands of, pe- thousands of years, people were holding out for the Messiah to come. How did they know that he was going to come? And when they did, how did they recognize him? And the s- short answer to that was simply this. They read their Bibles, they listened to the prophecies, they, they believed in the promises that the patriarchs had given, and they believed in those things, and that was their righteousness. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up in flesh and blood. The second question we asked last week was, why did Jesus have to come? Why didn't God just wave a wand from heaven and take care of redemption from afar? Why did he actually have to send his son to do this dirty work? And the answer to that was simply because it was dirty work. We're sick and we're ailing and we cannot save ourselves. And so God had to come in flesh and blood and be the great physician and the great healer that we all need to experience redemption and grace and salvation. Today, the question that we're going to ask as we get closer to Christmas is a very pointed question that you may or may not already know the answer to. But the question is this, why did Jesus have to be born through a virgin? I don't know if you've ever thought about that for a second. I don't know if any of your friends have talked with you about that or if you have close relationships with classmates or coworkers or neighbors who know that you're a Christian and have simply asked you, why do you guys believe in that fantastic stuff, those miracles that are really off the wall? I mean, come on. Do you really believe that Jesus, Mary was a virgin? I mean, come on. And what is our response to that? What does the scripture teach about that and what is the significance of that question? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. Luke 1 also mentions the virgin birth, but we're going to focus mainly on Matthew today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, we can read this together here up on the screen as well, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about, the birth, uh, the genesis, the inception, the beginning of his life. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, 
and he gave him the name Jesus. And in the Apostles' Creed, the second article, the first part, this is also stated in the Nicene Creed, we state as a church that Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Eight years ago, almost exactly to the day, I mean, give or take a couple of weeks to be honest, but eight years ago, I found out for the first time in my life that I was going to become a father. Um, And uh, the context around this great news was that Esther and I had been married for all of six months. And prior to that, we had dated all of six more months. And so we barely knew each other, and we were getting to know each other, and then we found out all of a sudden that we were going to become parents. And it was an overwhelming uh, moment in my life. Uh, all kinds of mixed emotions, uh, excited, uh, proud, scared, uh, anxious. Um, you know, after all of my emotions kind of settled down, my first question was, well, we don't even have health insurance. What are we going to do? And so there were just all kinds of thoughts going on in our minds. I remember not being able to sleep that night, thinking, will it be a boy or a girl? And depending on the gender, you know, who will it look like? And what will it do? And what will we name it? And just, I mean, it was just crazy. It was exciting. It was overwhelming altogether. And my wife gives me such a hard time because when I found out the third time that I was going to become a father, I wasn't as excited, I guess. I mean, I was excited, but I was preoccupied in doing other things. Um, But really, the most surprising, even though that was the first time we found out that we're going to be parents, it was really the second child that was really surprising because, again, I mean, this is a little bit of history, and I'll talk about this a lot more in the spring when we talk about marriage. But uh, our son, our first son, Nathan, was only nine months old. And then we found out again that we were expecting, all right? And uh, again, we were still fairly newlywed. We were uh, kind of uh, green in this idea, understanding of building a healthy marriage and becoming parents. And then we found out now we're going to have another child. And so, again, a same, similar combination of emotions, overwhelmed, excited, scared, a little embarrassed, to be honest with you. I mean, we just got married and now we're having our second child and people probably looking at us saying, you're irresponsible, you young, you know couple, whatever, you know, we were just popping out kids left and right and whatever. That was sort of uh, the beginning of our marriage. And now, lo and behold, almost 10 years later, we've got three awesome boys in our house. And uh, those days, uh, I always tell my kids, are the second happiest days of my life, that the days that I found out that they were uh, going to be born, I was just thrilled uh, because it was a privilege. It was something that I've always really looked forward to, to be able to m- teach my kids how to ride a bike, how to throw a football, how to read the Bible, to lead them to faith, to disciple them, to love them, uh, really to watch, uh, uh, watch them grow up and see who they become. It is really an exciting experience. And uh, every time a friend uh, of ours uh, tells us, hey, we're going to have a baby, we are able to share in that joy because we have gone through it ourselves. And uh, I uh, hope for that same type of exhilarating joy for all of you as well someday when you are able to become parents. But when Mary and Joseph received the news that they were going to have a baby, it wasn't received in the same way. At least not according to Luke's gospel. Luke tells us that Mary was greatly distressed when the angel told her what was going to happen. So much so that the angel had to tell her, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. She was literally flipping out. Because in her day and age, according to the law, if you were to become pregnant out of wedlock, you were subject to death by stoning. 
So it was a death sentence. I mean, in our day and age and in our country where over 750,000 teenage girls get pregnant every year out of wedlock, the story, the concept of the virgin birth has lost some of its gravity, some of its force, some of its weight. But you have to remember that when Mary and Joseph received this news, it was devastating. So much so that the righteous Joseph decided, well, you know what I'll do? I'll try to minimize the shame as much as possible. I'll do the only righteous thing, the only allowable thing according to Scripture, and I will divorce her, but I'll do it quietly. But an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, hey, that child is from the Holy Spirit. This is not a scandal. This is the way God has willed it. And so I want you to take Mary as your wife and raise this boy as your son. These are the circumstances that Jesus was born into. Mary and Joseph weren't thinking about what he's going to be when he grows up, you know, how they can't wait to teach him how to be a carpenter or what, you know, synagogue is he going to go to. They were overwhelmed with fear and grief, but their response was that of obedience. And I believe that is the primary reason why God chose to bring the Savior of the world into creation, into existence, into, onto this earth by choosing this couple because he knew in advance that their reaction to this incredible call upon their lives would simply be faithfulness and obedience. Not hesitancy, not compromise, not a wishy-washy back and forth, okay, maybe, maybe not. But, O Lord, may it be as you will, which was Mary's response in Luke chapter 1. But what does the virgin birth mean 2,000 years later? Is it real? Should we believe it? Recently in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof wrote an article, and he said, The faith of the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. I mean, Christians are getting bombarded left and right by saying, you guys believe in myths and fables. I mean, there is no historical truth to that. Scientifically, it's impossible. Why do you fools continue to hold out and believe in this kind of mystical religious uh, way of life? And Nicholas Kristof is aghast that so many Christians, and it's an, it's, it's an increasing percentage among evangelical churches, that believe that Jesus was actually born of a virgin. Another angle of, of attack comes from a, a gathering of religious scholars who call themselves the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar is, is a radical group of scholars that uh, uh, really examines uh, orthodox faith, but their launch point is the, the, the fact that the, the New Testament is not a credible source. It's not a, a credible uh, a source of evidence or belief or foundation for us to base any of our faith. One such scholar from the J Jesus Seminar named uh, John Dominic Crossan says, clearly, somebody went seeking in the Old Testament for a text that could be interpreted as prophesying a virginal conception, even if such was never its original meaning. Somebody had already decided on the transcendental importance of the adult Jesus and sought to retroject that significance into the conception and birth itself. Crossan is basically saying this is all made up and somebody kind of connected all the dots and came up with this hilarious story. Nicholas Kristof says according to biblical scholars, this is all a bunch of baloney. And it's interesting because when you actually fact check the scholars that Nicholas Kristof is quoting, 
almost all of them have been outcast by any uh, fundamental or evangelical uh, camp of faith. Uh, The leading scholar that he quotes has actually been disowned by the Catholic Church because his teachings and his research are so far out there and liberal, and yet Christoph is able to use it as a quote to say that we are believing in a bunch of baloney. And this group of scholars is saying, hey, we've just made all this stuff up and we're just more gullible than the rest of society. Is that true? Are we just more gullible? I mean, can you possibly believe that the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, this guy that walked and lived and talked 2,000 years ago, was born without a dad, without a seed? What are we to do with this? What are we to make of this? Matthew says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His, brother, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And a couple verses later, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke says in verse 1, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What do we do with this? What do we do with the virgin birth as believers, as Christians, as people who celebrate Christmas? We all have to begin with this simple fact. If we deny the virgin birth... We're denying the authority and the truth of Scripture because the Bible says so. And if we deny it and say, you know, it's just a myth, it was just something to get people excited a couple thousand years ago to start this movement and get people on board with this thing, then we deny the authority and the the truthfulness of Scripture. And if we deny it in one or two places, we might as well deny all of it. Or we could just become a people that say we pick and choose what we want to believe and what we don't. What's convenient for me? I like this doctrine, and I like this theory, and I like this command, but this command, man, this invades my privacy. This command, it makes me give away my money. You know, this command means I can't have sex until I'm married, and so, you know what, I'm going to casually put those off to the side, but I'm going to love on the grace part where I can do whatever I want and still be loved by God, and we kind of pick and choose. And so to to deny the virgin birth means we deny the sufficiency of the Bible, the truth of the Bible. But really, what do we do? What does the virgin birth teach us? What does it say? What does it point to as a body of Christ? What does it mean for us today? Well, I think it teaches us four very important things. And I want to talk about four things that are somewhat a little theological in nature so that you can have some of that. And then some of it, which is extremely, incredibly just practical. It just makes sense. Even though it's a paradox. Even though it's impossible. Even though it's never happened before. The virgin birth teaches us four things. First, it teaches us that salvation ultimately comes from God. There was nothing Mary could do in and of herself to bring forth the Savior of the world. Even with the help of Joseph, she would not have been able to bring into this world a sinless Messiah, a Savior, that Isaiah had pointed to 700 years earlier. It reminds us that we cannot pride ourselves in the ability to be saved. Matthew says twice But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, it says, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's the same expression. It's ek 
pneumatos hagias, from, out of, through, because of the Holy Spirit. Not because of Mary and not because of Joseph. They didn't come up with this idea or this conspiracy together. This is something that God and God alone had to do. And the truth is, for every single one of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and he's living within us, it is not something that we can do on our own either. When Jesus is born in our lives, it is also through the Holy Spirit. It is from the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth teaches us that from the very beginning when Jesus was brought into this world, And every subsequent day thereafter, when he came into our lives and he comes into your life, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that you have manufactured. It's not something that you have earned. It is not something that you have merited because of your good behavior or your narrow way of life. It is simply a work of God. That is what the virgin birth teaches us. There is no way in the world we can take pride or credit for our salvation. We cannot pride ourselves in being good people. And that's why we have favor with God. It is simply a work, an initiative of God, of the Holy Spirit. That's where we begin. That's what the Holy Spirit's uh, conception of the, of, the, of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, teaches us. That apart from God, we'd all be lost. We'd all be depraved, utterly, completely. The virgin birth also teaches us that the, that the uniting of full humanity and deity in one person is possible. It teaches us that God, that Jesus could be fully man and fully God at the same time always. Jesus wasn't half man, half amazing. Jesus was fully man and fully amazing. Jesus wasn't a bionic, like you flip on the switch to be God one day, you turn it off and you turn on the human switch the other day. Simultaneously, at the same time, in some mysterious, paradoxical way, Jesus was able to walk around on the earth, fully God, fully deity, and also at the same time, fully human. It's impossible. But Matthew tells us later in chapter 18, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And this is the way God willed it. The virgin birth teaches us that full deity and full humanity could exist in one person. This was God's way of manufacturing it. Now, were there other ways God could have done this? Maybe. But he didn't. Let's just think of a couple scenarios. Maybe what God could have done instead was create Jesus, the Messiah, up in heaven. He could have put together this, you know, Jewish carpenter, rabbi, male with long hair and fair skin, with a white robe, you know, all decked out, looking, glowing, you know, like the Savior, and then he could have sent him to earth on a cloud, and everybody could have been like, whoa, he's coming, that's him, it must be, look. Okay, God could have done that, I mean, there isn't anything God can't do, right? And so God could have created Jesus in heaven as a human with flesh and blood, with bones, with cells, with tissue, with everything that we have, and then sent him down to earth. But if God would have used that way of bringing full humanity and divinity into one person, then we would have a hard time believing at the end of the day that he is actually fully human because he wasn't born like we are born. He wasn't conceived like we're conceived. He didn't come into this world the way that we came into this world. He came into this world that way, not that way, that way, a different way. And so we'd have a hard time believing that he's actually human. We'd have to touch him and feel him and say, oh, no, it's just a hoax. You know, it's synthetic. It's not really flesh. Maybe another way God could have brought full deity and humanity into one person was to have 
Jesus just be born naturally, normally through the union of Joseph and Mary. God could have done this too. He could have, had, he could have just picked this lucky couple and said, Joseph and Mary have a child, and then I want you to set aside this child on you know, the day of his baptism or his circumcision or whatever, and then you know what we'll do? I am going to infer upon him deity. So you gave birth to him, but now I'm going to put my spirit in him, and he's going to be fully God. And he could have grown up, and he could have been fully man, and he could have been fully God that way. But who would have really believed that this kid who was born the way that everybody else is born in the same hospital, actually in the same manger that animals are born in, who would actually believe that he's also fully God? We just think he's a magician. He's just pulling strings to make it look like he's got some magic up his sleeve. See, God in his wisdom discerned that conceiving of his son by the Holy Spirit through a virgin who had yet to have sexual intercourse with the male would be the way in which he would introduce into the world a human being who would be the savior of the sins of humanity that would also be fully God simultaneously with being fully man. This is what the virgin Birth teaches us. All this took place to fulfill what Isaiah had said 700 years ago, that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not a great teacher, not a great rabbi, not a great pastor, not a great leader, but God himself would be with us. And it is through the virgin birth that God chose to bless humanity hard to believe to the modern thinker, to someone who doesn't believe in miracles, to someone who doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture. But for the rest of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, who put our faith in the testimony of the gospel witness, Matthew and Luke, and Mark and John as well, we believe the virgin birth teaches us that he's fully man and fully God. You see, The problem that some people have with these testimonies is that, what about Mark? What about John? Why didn't they mention anything about the virgin birth? I mean, two out of the four gospel writers mention it, so maybe this is an elective theory. Maybe it's sort of a toss-up, 50-50. If you want to believe it, you can, but if you don't, it's okay. I mean, two of the other gospel writers didn't either. Look at the Apostle Paul. When he goes preaching through uh, the book of Acts, he not once mentions the virgin birth, so he probably didn't believe it either. And so a lot of critical scholars will tell you to this day that it's just a toss-up. It's up to you whether you want to believe it or not. It probably didn't happen, but if you want to believe it, I mean, come on, you know, we also believe that he rose from the dead, so might as well just kind of bookend it together. But this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And remember, there were over 50 prophecies in the Old Testament and hundreds of promises in the Old Testament that pointed to a coming Messiah that would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin in a manger. The odds of one person, not just being fully deity and and fully human, but just the odds of fulfilling every prophecy and every promise in the Old Testament. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The odds of one person fulfilling all of those prophecies would be one in 100 trillion. If you took 100 100 trillion silver dollar coins and you laid them flat side by side, it'd cover the state of Texas up to three feet. And if you were to mark one of those silver dollars and then blindfold somebody and say, go into Texas and find that one with the mark, the odds of him finding that one silver dollar would be one in 100 trillion, which would be the same odds of Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecies and promises spoken about him in the Old Testament. And so is it impossible? Yes, it is impossible with man. 
but with God it isn't. And this is the way he chose to give us his son, so that he could be God with us. Eugene Peterson writes in his translation of the Gospel of John, God took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. He moved into the neighborhood. He came just like us, but not like us. So the virgin birth teaches us that uh, it's completely a work of God. It teaches us that uh, God could be, uh, that God could send his son and be fully deity and fully human. It also teaches us that Christ's true humanity could exist without any inherited sin. Why is this important? Well, you have to remember, for Jesus to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world, for the sins of humanity, he had to be perfect, literally, without flaw, without stain, without sin. He had to be perfect. For us to be righteous and acceptable before God, even though we are utterly sinful, our record of sin would have to be exchanged with a perfect record of obedience, which was Jesus' record of obedience. So Jesus lived a perfect life, but in order for him to be born without inherited sin the way that we all are, it's also known as the doctrine of original sin, God would have to partially interrupt the transmission of sin in the line of Jesus by covering over Mary and not letting Jesus be born to a human father. You see, every single one of us, as a descendant of Adam and Eve, we are born in sin. We have inherited their original sin. You're like, what do you mean? Don't we learn how to sin when we grow up? No, look at babies. They sin. I, I have three of them. I look at they, they're, 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 they're selfish. I mean, come on. I mean, they're full of themselves. I mean, they're, they're sinful from birth. You put two babies together and one toy in the middle, and there will be a war. I mean, babies already know. Okay? And so it's just in our nature. I wonder what it would look like to have a toy with Jesus the baby and like another baby. Jesus probably would have given the toy. I don't know, but that's just, I'm thinking out loud for a split second. Jesus was able to be born and be a human without inherited sin because of this unusual way of conception. This doesn't mean that sin is only passed through man because he was still born through an actual human woman. It means that the transmission of sin from Joseph to Jesus was partially interrupted But then let's, come on, let's just put on our investigative cap for a second. Well, what about Mary? He was still born to her, and she was a sinner. Why didn't he inherit any of her stuff, right? Her sin, right? Well, true, that's a good question. And the Catholic Church teaches that Mary, too, was also sinless. So they call this the Immaculate Conception. Mary was also holy. That's why they've lifted her to sainthood. That's why they pray to her. And she can also forgive them of their sins, because she was perfect and holy and sinless. And the only problem with that is that the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't teach that. The only possible explanation is what the gospel writers tell us. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, the power of God, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called Holy Son of God. In some incredible, miraculous, mysterious way, the power of God through the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that even her sin and her flesh and her depravity would not be passed on and transmitted to her child. So that he could come into this world without blemish, stain, wrinkle, or sin, live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and be raised again from the dead so that all of us 
if we are to put faith in him, would have our rotten, miserable, sinful record replaced with Jesus' perfect, holy, righteous record. It wouldn't be possible otherwise. So the virgin birth is, is significant because it allows Jesus to be fully God and fully man, but not have inherited original sin from Adam and Eve, the way that you and I have all done so. Lastly, the virgin birth teaches us that salvation is fully, totally a gift of grace. What do I mean by that? Well, why Mary? Why did God choose Mary? I mean, there were probably hundreds, hundreds of capable, able, willing, young Jewish teenagers that were minding their own business, that were going to synagogue every week, that were saying the prayers and believed and held to the teachings of the patriarchs and followed and obeyed the Mosaic law to a T. There were probably hundreds of them, any one of them that God could have chosen. We know he had to choose Joseph or at least somebody in Joseph's family because Joseph was a line of David. But why Mary? What made Mary stand out from any other girl at that time in that day? We don't know. I mean, maybe Mary manifested the qualities of faithfulness and obedience. Maybe she was humble in heart. But we're not really sure. I mean, what if there were other girls that were also faithfulness and obedient and humble in heart? I mean, what set her apart? Why did the angel, when it came to Mary to deliver the Annunciation, say, you have found favor with God? What did she do to merit this kind of favor with God? Because the Bible doesn't really tell us up until this point. We don't know anything about her childhood, her upbringing, what she learned in VBS, what, v- what her youth group taught her, you know, what she learned at a retreat. We don't know anything about her spiritual journey or pilgrimage. We just know that she was chosen by God because she was highly favored. We also know that she was incredibly obedient to death, to her son's death. She didn't renege on her word one bit. When she saw him falsely accused and crucified on the cross, she didn't say, okay, we made it up, bring him down, he's lying. No, she stood by her story because it was the truth, because she obeyed it. Why did God choose her? Because she was willing. Because she was willing. Spiritual greatness is not a matter of social class, monetary clout, or degreed background. Spiritual greatness is a matter of the heart. God in his wisdom and power can choose anybody off the street who's willing to be faithful and obedient. God can use the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the smartest and the brightest. God does and he can and he will. But this story, this virgin birth reminds us that even greatness in the eyes of the world does not matter to God. A virgin who's not even yet married, who has nothing to offer, nothing to give, can't even afford a hotel room on the night her baby was going to be born, was the humble servant that God chose to save the world from their sins. It's fully a gift of grace. This Christmas, remember, this gift that we receive is an undeserved gift. It is an unprayed answer. We are not deserving of this beautiful child. 
And yet because of God's grace and mercy and faithfulness and love, he sent his vulnerable, beautiful, only begotten son into this world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is what we're celebrating. That is the one to whom we should be giving our entire lives as a gift this Christmas. The virgin birth reminds us that it is grace that we have received this amazing gift, all of us. You see, when I was growing up, uh, my parents wanted to teach my brother and I some responsibility, so they tried the dog thing, and that completely exploded. It blew up in their faces, not ours, theirs. Uh, eventually gave the dog away. Uh, and then they tried, you know, in different ways, and this is according to my interpretation, of course. Uh, but at one point, they decided, all right, let's buy a fish tank, and we'll have our kids take care of this fish. It was a huge tank. And I don't remember why they decided to do this. This is very unorthodox. I mean, if you were to meet my parents today, they're not the kind of people that would go out and spend money on a fish tank, and a big one at that. But they bought one anyway, and they said, Eugene, Marvin, take care of it. It's yours. It's your responsibility. It's up to you. And so for years, my brother and I, we took care of this fish tank. We washed it, we cleaned it, we'd empty out the water once a month, we'd put in fresh water, we'd check the pH, we'd put tablets and all kinds of chemicals in it. We're little kids, we don't know what we're doing, but we think, you know, we're just doing our best, and sometimes the fish would live, sometimes they'd die, sometimes they'd have these weird growths. I mean, they're just fish, right? But every day we'd have to wake up and we'd have to feed it, and we'd have to check the pH of the water, we'd have to change the filter, we'd have to buy new rocks, put in new plants, go to the store, bring home new fish. I mean, it was responsibility for kids. It was a lot to learn. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking, and really, as I reflect on it now as an adult, every time I tried to do something for these fish, they would just, like, disappear in fear. Like, if I came up to the aquarium, they would just hide. If I came to feed them, they would hide, and then only after it was safe and sound, and the food was without any hooks or strings attached, they'd go up and they'd eat it. If I was trying to take them out of their habitat so that I could clean it and then restore them to a nice and clean one, they would run. They would never willingly come into my hand or into the net that I was trying to use to scoop them out. They would always flee from me, even though I was the one that was responsible for their existence. Even though I was the one that fed them every day. Even though I was the one that gave them protection and shelter and security. Even though, just like that, I could pull the plug, I could literally go in there and kill them or give them life, they feared my presence, my very shadow upon the aquarium. <laughs> All right, I'm being a little dramatic here, but you, get my, you, you see where I'm going with this? The only way they would trust me, the only way they would accept me, the only way would be as if I jumped into the aquarium and became a fish. That's right. That would be the only way these fish would be like, oh, it's you. Hi, you know? Like, I don't know how fish kind of talk to each other. The only way they would have trusted me, the only way they would have believed that I really cared about them and that I was doing all of this for their best interest would be as if I became one of them. And that's what God did. That's what God did. Because without his son... Without the word becoming flesh and blood, moving into the neighborhood, without the word becoming flesh, think about it for a second. It'd be hard to believe that we would really feel secure, that the Almighty God, somewhere out there in the middle of nowhere, cares about us, knows that we're hurting, knows that we're lonely, that we're stressed, that we have fears, 
And any time the earth would tremble or something would happen, there's a war, we'd be afraid that he's bringing it all to an end. He's going to wipe us out and start all over again. But we don't have to live in that fear. We don't have to live in that uncertainty. We don't have to live in that mystery because we know that God sent his son, that God became flesh and blood. That's what we learned from the virgin birth, that it was possible, that in God's manifold wisdom, this is how he chose it to be. Does it require faith? Absolutely. Because it's ridiculous. This doesn't happen. But it did. And we believe it, and we celebrate it. And it is the foundation of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the testimony of these gospel writers and witnesses. We thank you for your humble, faithful servant, Mary, who was a vulnerable, unstable, poor Hebrew girl that accepted this incredible assignment of bringing to life and birth into this world your son, Jesus. We thank you for the righteousness of Joseph to stand up as a man, to be a good father and a good husband, to raise up this child. We thank you, Father, for your grace that though we do not deserve your favor and your mercy, you have given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, this year, in this season of Advent, as we approach Christmas, may we be reminded that this was really when you decided to show up to love us by touching us with your own hands and your own skin, by reaching out and embracing us. And so, Father, we worship you, we exalt you. Lord, may our response be the response of Mary and simply be that of obedience and faithfulness. Lord, may we be highly favored because we trust, we believe, and we obey. So, Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise. Thank you for your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.